from GRNE Solar. This. This. This is What's Up. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of What's Up. You got Ryan and Marie here. Hey, everybody. And today we have an awesome interview for you. We are sitting down with Mariah Lin, the president and owner of Good Steward Consulting, PR firm in renewables and in that sector. And they're based out of Minnesota that Marie actually met with Mariah. Yeah, you can see me nodding my head. Yeah, Mariah and I <laughs> met at the Midwest Solar Expo um, back in May. And she and I sat down, I think we were eating lunch together. And she mentioned to me, there was a brownie that like we call them brownies out here in Illinois, like the food. And she says to me, what do you guys call these? And I said, brownies. And she goes, out here in Minnesota, we call them bars. Bars. Like a candy bar? Like a candy bar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's in bar form, sure. But like. It was in bar form and it was a blondie. But that's even different. I know. We'll have to address this with Mariah during the interview. Oh, 100%. (laughs) So, of course, that ensued with with my many questions to her of what she called various different things. Of course. To which I cannot remember those. But then we got to talking about her PR. And there's a lot of wind development in Minnesota. She was talking to us about all the different strategies that they're using for the adversaries. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a great, great interview with her. All right. Hope you guys enjoy. And here's the interview. now welcome on Mariah Lin, the president and owner of Good Steward Consulting, PR firm that deals in renewables based out of Minnesota. Mariah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to join you and Marie today, and I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about uh, some of the practices and some some just uh, guidelines with regard to communicating solar projects at any scale. Yeah, we're, we're super pumped for that. So what is the typical kind of clientele that Good Steward works with? Well, Good Steward is a public relations, public affairs, outreach, communication, and marketing firm out of Minnesota. We deal specifically with utility-scale renewable energy developments, so wind, solar, battery storage. When clients come to you, what are they typically looking for Really, we start out doing recon, so we'll go into communities that they're targeting that they think might be viable locations, and we'll do some recon, kind of figure out and feel out the rural culture, because most of these are occurring, of course, in rural settings. Mm -hmm. So we'll go out, learn about that uh, rural community, and then uh, do some desktop research and provide a report and let them know what the lay of the land is from a socio-cultural kind of uh, lens. And then we'll give them an expectation on what we believe the the likelihood is of having any sort of opposition to the project. So that's kind of our recon reporting. Once they've kind of gone out after that, taken a look at the reporting, they'll go do the land acquisition or finish that up, and we'll help them with really strategic communications. Where should we be putting advertisements? Where should we be spending money through sponsorships? Who needs to be informed? At what interval do we need to inform them? And then we'll listen within the community as well. Are there people who are concerned about an impeding project? Um, And then help navigate that as well. So not only do we deal with opposition to projects, we really try to prevent opposition. And we also try to grow support for those projects through the participating landowners and other advocates that always are in support of renewable energy in these project areas, but may not raise a 
raise up their hand or reach out to us and say, hey, I support you. How can I help? <laughs> you know, we're out there trying to find them and cultivating those relationships. And then throughout the permitting process and the development process, we also act as boots on the ground for the developers so they don't have to travel there as much or as frequently. We'll have a local representative there, somebody that's local to the project area. I'll go out, do some research and some interviewing. I'll hire a local person. We'll rent a local office. And then we now have created our first job and also our our first revenue stream into that community through rent. So then during the permitting process, public outreach and communications, a lot of states or uh, areas will mandate public meetings as part of the permitting process. But the development companies that I work with have regular ongoing public meetings throughout permitting just to to make sure that everybody's staying well informed. So we'll man those and organize those and do the event planning. Um, Basically, our role is to help the projects be a good neighbor and a good community member in these new locations where they're looking to develop. And then, of course, to take some of the strain and strife off of the developer and the development staff themselves because... um, you know, they have unique talents that we don't have. I, I can't tell you how to engineer a solar project. Right. But if you tell me how you're engineering it, I can apply a rural filter and I can sit down with Farmer Joe at his kitchen table and explain it to him. Yeah. And that saves the developer a trip out there for every single person. And I know that's kind of a, a big hurdle to jump through, too. I used to actually live in central Illinois where there's a ton of commercial wind development. I have talked with a couple of developers that they would do the same, you know, go through another organization, do the exact same thing you guys are doing. And like those rural people that, you know, are, are going to be living near the turbines or, you know, seeing them are your biggest hurdle to, to get over. And being that good neighbor is kind of the, the big thing because people, you know, they do have to look at them and not everybody likes to think that they're as beautiful as, as we may. Right. And that's kind of where Good Steward developed out of was we've been doing this now for approximately two years and what I saw when I entered into the industry as a consultant for communications was that there were a lot of PR companies trying to handle this that were based out of large metro areas Mm -hmm. myself I was a farm wife for 10 years on the edge of a 120 turbine wind farm oh so you know exactly yeah my husband at the time um, we had rented land that we actually watched turbines come in and be constructed on and then we continued to farm around and we really didn't think it was a big deal so yeah and you know even now the town that i live in is just over 300 uh, (laughs) by for population and our headquarters is in albert lee minnesota which has a population of a a bit over eighteen thousand people so we the team and i are professionals we've got communication degrees and experience but we're also people with farming and agricultural backgrounds who live in rural settings so when we go out to deliver the same type of uh, methodology for communication it's a bit of a warmer tone you know i'm coming in in my boots and my baseball cap um, and i'm saying i'm from rural southern Minnesota, you know, asking them about their crops and able to tell and share about our crops. And it just kind of lets the guard down a little bit to establish some more trust. And that's when we can communicate effectively when there's trust involved. I bet there was a lot of sentiment, at least the people that I had talked to too, that's like, you know, the, the city slickers coming in, telling us about the, the energy that's, that's coming in here. And that's building that trust is I imagine very important in kind of dealing with the issues that some of these people bring up. 
Absolutely. And, and that's what it's all about, no matter the scale or size or even what your project is. Whenever there's something new development-wise going into a rural area or a smaller town, it's really going to come down to, do I trust you? If I trust you and I feel like I have that good basis of trust, you've got a good background, you approach me with respect, you communicate with me openly. If I can set that table of communication and trust, then, okay, my ears are open, and now I'm willing to really listen. Mm-hmm. Not just not just hear you, but really listen to why these might be good things for me, for my neighbors, for my community. And so the more we can do that, the more we can establish that trust through communication, the more we can really have traction with our messages. Otherwise, we're just shooting words at people, and they're they're not accepting them as anything that they should be putting thought into, but rather... Like you said, Brian, well, these CD slippers are coming in here and they're just saying whatever they need to say because they want to go back to their apartment in their suit, you know, right. driving their <laughs> that's, that's just a sentiment that, that we do tend to have. And, and it's a reality, but it, it's also a part of small towns that I appreciate. And it's why I live in a small town mm-hmm. because, you know, you know everybody's business and everybody's looking out for one another because it is more of a family mentality in yeah. a community of that size. Yeah, I will attest to Mariah walking her talk because in our uh, when we did meet, she mentioned to Eric and I that she drives a big old truck, and sometimes <laughs> she can't fit her truck in the different parking garages and has to what you you makeshift a path of some sort, whether that be train, bus, what have you. Usually Uber. Yeah, usually yeah. Uber. <laughs> um, so that was definitely uh, she walks her talk for sure. Yeah. So can we take it up a little bit? So you're, you know, we talked about having the one-on-one conversations and building trust. How do you expand that? to working with different village boards because typically the village hall and municipalities are the hub of the area so how do you establish trust or speak to adversaries at these village board meetings that's an excellent question in my experience you you can kind of approach that two different ways right you go out and you've got participants who are interested, whether that's rooftop solar, solar gardens, or even utility scale solar. Whatever your project is, the reason that you're talking to these boards is because you've determined that there's interest, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's always the first thing. Somebody's interested in it. You're not going to go to a board without having interested parties. In my experience, when you're having those types of discussions, you have to remember to look at it through the lens of that village president or that local small town mayor or that commission board member, you've got to look at it through their lens. And who is going to be able to establish that level of trust so that communication and information really gets through to that receiving party, right? So it goes back to what we were talking about and having that level of trust. Typically, what I feel works really well is If you've got people who are interested and you need to go to a village board, then you know that you have a constituent of that board that is interested. If you put that person out first and you go with them or you inform them and they start to lay the foundation of communication of this, a lot of times that's a bit more well-received because it's somebody that's familiar, that's bringing the idea to the table, starting the conversation and coming to this person in their role, you know, in their governmental role and saying, look, 
I live here. I would like to do this. I've got a company that I really trust and I've established a great relationship with. I think I'd like to partner with them on it. They're going to have some questions about how that's going to work. Are you the best person for me to, to schedule a meeting with so that we can make sure that this goes forward? That's going to go a little bit further than if you, as a developer, as a service provider, just call, cold call, and say, hey, mm-hmm. there's some interest in your area. I'd like to sit down and maybe we can discuss, you know, do you have any ordinances? I haven't seen anything. What's your position on this? How can we best educate you and equip you with the right tools and resources? So if you don't have an ordinance, but you feel you need one, we put something in place that's going to benefit not only the city or the village or the county or the township, but also the people that live therein and allow them to have the the flexibility and ability to take advantage of things like credits that might be on the table today that could be lost in the future. Um, So I would say making sure that you've got a strong, well-educated, interested party or two or three or four or 50 and using them to be the communicators has really given a lot of traction to us in in the projects that we've lended our, our abilities to. Yeah, it all seems to be about like just creating that credibility and it get, gets perfectly back into what you said with the, uh, you know, just trust in, in the area, especially in like a rural community. Really, it's the community members that are going to be there um, when all is said and done. So getting their backing and having them speak on behalf of the company definitely takes it a lot further. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and you've just pivoted the conversation then, right? Mm-hmm. Because the conversation's not about making money. The conversation is about how best to serve the citizens who are in your district. What do they want? So it's it's not about, hey, there's this company coming in and they want to they want to sell X, Y, and Z across our area. How do we protect our citizens from that? We've pivoted the entire conversation and said, our citizens are coming to us and they have a desire to do this. And because of their desire, they've got a partner and that partner's name is X, Y, Z Solar. Now, how do we work with XYZ Solar to make sure that our citizens are getting what they're needing or what they're asking for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I want to jump back a second. You said that you had wind turbines on your own land. You used to farm right around them. So did you, when you guys put those in, because I know the sentiment oftentimes is that the people that have them on their land love them because you're getting a ton of money basically coming in every month (laughs) from it. Did you get any kind of pushback from your neighbors or people like around the area and you kind of had to fight for your own land? Uh, you know, that's a really good question, a very common question. We actually rented the farm ground. So oh. our landlord was the one that got the money from the wind turbines. And we as tenants of that farm ground were the ones that farmed around them. Okay. And my ex-husband still farms around them to this day. Wow. So typically you, you see people with a wind farm development or with a solar development. It, it's the land renters that are more likely to be the opposition okay. right? because they don't control the land. Um, there are plenty in, in our township where this uh, wind farm is located in southern Minnesota. There are plenty of local participating landowners who own and farm their ground that have turbines on them. Um, that's the majority. The minority is somebody like our situation where you have an absentee landowner and we're the farm renter. So when they came in and did the development, I wasn't in this industry. I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was we were going to get this wind farm. And I thought, well, that's super cool. It's green energy. My kids at the time, I had a son. He was uh, very young. He was about one and a half when they started bringing in for the the set down, lay down ground. I'm sure he loved it. All the parts. 
Yeah, and so I was like, this is great. I've got this one-year-old son. By the time he's two and wants to see heavy machinery on TV, I can just drive him out to the field and he can <laughs> yeah. watch these things get put up. You're like, touch a truck? No way. We can just go on out there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and, and I did. I, I had a minivan, and I sat at the corner of the field, and I had my son in his car seat in the back, and I would read a book in the front, and he would just sit there for two hours just watching. It's just all great free entertainment. Stuff. It was it was great entertainment. So I guess I never saw it with a negative lens. Um, and then even when they were constructed and we started farming around them, my husband at the time was like, oh, geez, you know, we might have some tile issues. I'm worried about this. You know, it's breaking up my rows. Me as a farm wife at the time, I was like, hey, this is great because mm-hmm. I now had a way to get to the middle of the field to deliver parts or you know, oh, yeah. lunch or whatever. Right. And you I have didn't to... have to wait until the combine or the planter got all the way back to the other end of the field to save me tons of time. So, yeah. <laughs> well, so what, really... if he's still farming around them, has he had any kind of negative sentiment to it? I mean, at the time after they had been put up and they had been there for a couple of years, we did have some questions about some tile that we thought may have been crushed. Okay. And that's going to happen when farmer or when farm developers they know that there's a possibility for that and they track everything very well. All that he did is went to the O&M operations and maintenance building, talked to the manager there. His name's Greg. He's a great guy. And, you know, he would go and say, Hey, I had this issue. This is what it looked like. Greg would look into it. And then Greg would send out a tile company. Everything would get fixed. We never saw a bill and life goes on. Usually these development companies or the end owner of these companies, which is typically a utility company, right? Right. They treat their participating landowners and those that run the ground within the project area with a lot of respect. I would hope so, for sure, (laughs) if it's right next to their turbine. Exactly. So as far as neighbors having issues... You know, we had a couple of neighbors who thought that the wind turbines were going to make them sick. And they didn't want the wind turbines to come in. And then we had them up for five or six years and everybody just kind of moved on. They become a part of your landscape and you enjoy them. And actually, I always called them my beacon because okay. I knew I was getting close to home when I could see the wind farm. Yeah, like, oh, you see those, okay. those right. <laughs> bright red blinking lights at night when they're going on. Yeah. One of the other things that I heard as a, as a negative people would talk about is that they would say, at least downstate, would say like, oh, all these wind farms, they're, you know, it's kind of cool because it's green energy or they might be kind of against it. But the big problem they had was that they said all the power is going to Chicago. So do you get that a lot <laughs> with like people saying it's all going to the cities? Oh, yeah. It, it, it's the same city slicker mentality. And I'll let you in uh, rurally. In my community and, and plenty of others, there is a term that we use for people that come in from big cities, and we don't call them city slickers; we call them cityites. Cityites. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I love it. <laughs> no offense to anyone, it, it, but that's a that's a common slang term. But no, a lot of questions come in about the fact that why are you putting this project right here? I'm going to have to look at it, and then you're going to send all of this energy to the cityites, which is why I bring up the term, right? Okay. I feel uh, like that's going to be the name of this episode now. Cityites. Well, again, I don't want to offend anybody, but I have had that exact question framed that way and asked on a multiple uh, on multiple occasions. Yeah. So, M- Mariah, why are you going to come? in here and do this in my backyard we're gonna have to look at it and then all the power is gonna go to los angeles <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. you know this is that's this like is minnesota it's like yeah it's, it's not really how the electric grid works in general but like okay 
Exactly. But again, you have to think about the mentality because for a lot of these folks in a lot of these communities, there are some that really understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. They're believers and advocates, and that's wonderful. But then you have people who are just against change no matter what it is. The NIMBYs, not in my backyard. Yeah, no matter what you're going to put there, they don't want it there. And then they're going to start grasping at straws for different reasons why we should all come together and fight against this project and that is a leading one because why do we as a rural community need to bear the sight of these things when it's all the people in the big cities that are getting the power Mm -hmm. and you think okay let's back that up and let's talk through this a little bit and then we do talk about how the electrical grid works right and how power goes on the grid and comes off the grid and we talk about the need for us to power everybody not just those that are around us and how if the best analogy that i give people when they talk about it it's not fair this power goes somewhere else okay most of the time in that audience will have row crop farmers Mm. who have commodities like corn or soybeans or wheat you know things like that and i'll say okay so you grow your corn and you plant it you grow it you tend to it all year you go out you harvest it and then you put it in your green truck or your uh, green semi Mm -hmm. and you take it to the elevator where does it go and they're like well um what do you mean it goes to the elevator yeah and and did you you probably Uh, sold it through a contract right well yeah i mean that's what you do you contract your grain and then you take it in you deliver on your contracts and then the green elevator takes it and they put it in a train car and they send it away okay so can you show me the loaf of bread or the box of cornflakes that your corn from last season went out there and made well no it's a commodity exactly it's a commodity just like energy is a commodity and we grow it where it can be grown and then it's used where it can be used so whether it's used locally to make the bread that you get in your local grocery store or it's sold on the chicago board of trade you know the contract we're just looking at the numbers but it's actually delivered to a plant that turns it into bread that ships it to chicago or washington dc huh that's a great analogy for it because it kind of seems like what you guys are doing then is you're molding it in the same sort of pride that a lot of farmers have for growing their own food. Yeah, that's exactly. definitely getting their buy-in. I like that. that. Um, so you mentioned the the farmland. I know you just recently talked with PV Magazine about adversaries towards utilizing farmland. And then last week we had the pleasure of talking with John Kinch about community solar and marginal lands. So what are the types of things that you're hearing from people about using marginal lands and the opposite of that, using farmlands for developments? I'm glad you mentioned the PV Magazine article because I've I've had a lot of people ask questions about that particular thing. And and that is a good resource. It was very in-depth. But I was just at a meeting last night, a project meeting for one of my clients a few hours from home here. And I had a wonderful, beautiful conversation with one of the participating landowners in that project. And it's a solar project. And he actually was talking to me about the fact that it was a really hard decision. He goes, you know, this wasn't an easy decision, Mariah. This was a hard decision. My great-grandfather ran this ground. My grandfather ran it. I run it. I've got a son and a grandson. And you hope that they're all going to keep farming. 
and he said, so, you know, we didn't put all of our land into it. And I said, that's completely understandable. And he said, it was a hard decision. And I looked at him and I said, because why? And he said, well, because it's prime farm ground. And I said, what, what changed your mind? And he looked at me and he said, what changed my mind was my son and my grandson. Because even though it's prime farm ground right now, I can't make enough money on it to make sure that it's going to be there for yeah. my grandson. Wow. So I have two options. I either take the lifeline and I start to open up and, and understand that this is a viable possibility for me and my farm family, or I, I suck it up and I, I just kind of grind through it and hope and pray that commodity prices come up and that our yields are good enough to give us what we need to pay the bank. Mm-hmm. And he said, at the end of the day, I had to remember that this is also powering the world just like we've been told we feed the world and i just smiled and i i just kind of i wanted to give the guy a big bear hug yeah <laughs> yeah honestly it's, um, it's a it's a great story doing a little bit of research just uh, when i used to live down there that you know you can do exactly that you can like increase the productivity of the same piece of land by you know upwards of a hundred percent money wise for what you're getting for it Oh, absolutely. And and there are so many great benefits to it. And that's why I think right now is such a wonderful time. This is a good convergence right now for, for solar and agriculture because we are in a market that reminds us as producers that good years only last as long as good years last. And the bad years are coming. And, and that's just always how it is when you're yeah. dealing with a commodity, right? Because right. We, we can't control the market. I think it's a perfect time for these conversations to be taking place because – it's going to get good again, and you might have some ears that close. And then by the time it gets bad again, there's going to be a, an even greater need. Hopefully by then there'll be an even greater understanding as right. well. But that just does show prime land is prime for a couple of different reasons, right? You've got marginal land. Marginal land is usually eligible for some sort of other CRP or governmental management system, right, where you can get some money off of it. Mm-hmm. When you've got prime egg land, you're not necessarily in a typical environment. There are some subsidies, but they're not subsidies that would help you manage the amount of input costs and labor to run the prime farm ground, right? So marginal land, definitely there's benefits to that from a producer or from the the landowner side of things. If you're running the actual ground, this is the kind of lifeline that CRP has been in the past for people who have marginal or reserve lands who are trying to do uh, reservations or restorations of, you know, native prairie or swamp mm-hmm. land or anything of that nature. I would say right now is prime for prime farm ground. Marginal too, but I, I'm a fan of, of the, the big large projects where we can actually help the producers by throwing out that lifeline and saying, here you go. You know, you might run 500 acres. How do you feel about putting 100 of that into this type of contract and this type of land use where you're still producing a commodity? And by the way, we're going to help you sustain the other 400 acres so you can keep operating, you can keep your equipment, you can know that there's some diversification and some stability for the next generation to come. Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of that, like a more traditional farm could, uh, you're going to see a lot of it turning into now energy farming, you know, really somebody that already owns that much land that they can just contract the exact same way that they are and prices that corn and soybeans have been fetching lately, especially with all of the 
you know tariffs everything going on it's it's a hard game out there to be to be farming and, and selling crops whereas energy is you know the value is really only going to go higher yeah and, and there's been an explosion of it in in my area in a 40 mile radius of where i'm living right now just out in the truck driving to project areas or meetings i see an explosion of ground level solar popping up at these smaller scales on a corner mm-hmm. of uh, an 80 acre farm. So maybe they've got 20 acres on an 80. Well, I know a lot of the people that own that farm ground and that's the, that's the guy that owns and operates a farm that has 300 acres and he's carving 20 acres out and he's signing a contract and he's putting, you know, solar on those 20 acres through a, either a community program or another private entity and he's using that as a diversification because for a lot of these guys, you know, we're in our fourth year of losses for corn and soybeans in my region. And so we see farmers that are, you know, everything's getting put on auction. Your banker's only going to give you a rope long enough, but then at some point they're going to call all those notes in. And if you can come to them and say, oh, and by the way, I just signed this contract and year over year, I'm going to have these types of payments and this type of income. Well, now your banker feels more stable about your farm operation Mm -hmm. because you're able to add that level of diversification. So maybe that guy goes out and he rents additional land because he's got a, a more stable farm operation. But at the very least, that guy's going to be able to farm the remainder of his farm with the equipment that he has and know that he can he can make it happen. He can make it work for the next you know several years. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, so the grandkids of the farmer that you were speaking about indirectly influenced their decision. Have you seen more of an influx as renewables is becoming mainstream um, and it's even being put into more curriculums? Are you seeing a lot of influence from the youth? Yes. Absolutely. A hundred percent. The youth of, of America, whether no matter where they're located, you're right. You hit the, the, you hit the nail on the head when you said through curriculum, you know, the way that we're teaching science and engineering, the, the way we're discussing weather, the way we're discussing our history and our future. A lot of that now, the curriculums in these schools, they actually do address things like climate change and they address uh, the budding job opportunity and career opportunities inside things like the renewable energy industry. So we're seeing that we're also, of course, through the projects that we're working with, encouraging our clients, our development clients to go over and above and provide extra curriculum inside the communities that we're working with so that the kids and the youth who are going to be the adults of of the next generation here are really educated from a young age with regard to the specific technology that we're putting in place in their area, right? So how does wind work? How do solar panels work? What's the science behind it? What are some career opportunities? Um, Even my 10-year-old son, he, he, yeah, he wants to be a YouTube gamer when he grows up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is, you know, but I'm like, okay. And I said, so what kind of degree do you think you need for that? Well, he's got it all mapped out. He knows exactly what he needs to do. Of course, six months ago, he wanted to be a coder. So, but when I was it going changes. through school, these were not things that you talked about. You didn't, right. you know. That was unheard of. When I was 10, I think we had just maybe gotten the internet. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) But things do change. And and again, going back to that term lens, through the lens of today's youth, this is not alternative energy, right? It used to be alternative energy. Right. Through that lens, it's not alternative energy. 
this is just energy. Yeah. This is how it's going to be done. And in their minds, they're not going to know much different than this. So I think you do hit the hit the nail on the head there in the fact that these next generations have a lot of influence. And, and we do see that out in our project areas. And even this gentleman, when it came to his grandson, said, you know, I know after 25 or 50 years, my, he said, my son's not going to be able to run the ground that we're leasing, but my grandson could. Mm-hmm. And he had been well-informed already. And so he said, you know, and it could be some of the best soil that we've had for generations. And I said, amen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And if he wants to farm, he can. And if he doesn't want to farm, that's okay, too. You know, and, and that's kind of a shift that we've seen here in this generation, I believe, in family farms right now. It's not a given that the next generation is going to farm. And we see a lot of uh, farm families that are requiring the next generation to go and get a degree in something else because of the extreme volatility. And then once they have a degree that could be transferred into some other career, then they can come back and they can start to, to take over the farm. But because of the volatility that we've seen, you know, no parent wants to hand on to their child or their next generation something that doesn't have stability. You don't want to hand right. off a, a big old bag of question marks. Right. You mm-hmm. want to hand off something that's got got some some stability and some predictability that you think is going to help that next generation be successful. And so a, a lot of things are changing in agriculture right now. And, and that's definitely one of yeah. them. It's honestly such a cool thing to hear. I attended Illinois State and I got my degree for renewable energy and I, I didn't even think that I was going to end up in where I was, you know, if you would ask me in, in middle school, I wanted to be like an astronaut. So <laughs> my professors would lose their mind if they heard that exact sentence. That's just, you know, what we want to hear because we do want to you know, transition kind of more away from those traditional fuels because there's such an availability of renewable sources moving forward and it's it's changing absolutely well and i'm i'm grateful for it and kudos to to the industry because you know that didn't just happen overnight mm-hmm. that was strategically done through education and through information sharing and advocacy from those before us you know this is something that we can thank the people that led this industry earlier on for having done such a great job in paving that road in that path no unfortunately i think what's going to happen is i probably have a good 25 years left for good steward consulting and then nobody's going to be against these projects anymore and i'll be out of business (laughs) i guess that's you know good and the bad there it'll be good that everyone knows about it you don't have to do that consulting but also bad then because the business but there'll be a new type of renewable that will come into play and then you'll just start going in that market. Absolutely. I would love that. In fact, that would be the the absolute best of 25 years we transitioned into what else was being fought because this fight's over. Absolutely. But I think that's viable. I think that it is becoming more mainstream in the minds of our youth and in our next generation. I think you're going to see a completely different angle or twist to this than what we're seeing here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely agree. Can you share your greatest success story of working with adversaries that then became advocates? You know, no. And I'm going to tell you that our goal is never to try to get somebody that's adversary to come over onto the side of, of being an advocate. And the reason being is because they're not the reason that we're there. We, we want them to have an open mind. Mm-hmm. We want them not to clog up the process by being disruptive or disrespectful or bullying our landowners. We want to make sure that they're 
able to voice their concerns and that we can address all their concerns. But I have no intention or serious belief that I can convert anybody that hates renewable energy. And quite frankly, it's not my goal. My goal is to make sure the projects get permitted and those people who want to participate in renewable energy for their benefit personally and for the benefit of their neighbors and their communities are able to to exercise that advocacy and we're able to go ahead and get projects permitted. I would say the most successful or proud moment that, that I ever have is when we permit a project that has opposition. So it's never really about one individual. It's about getting that permit and doing something brand new in an area that's utility scale that when we first entered the area, we were told that'll never happen. It will never happen. I will never allow that to happen. We're not going to be able to do it. And you can try as hard as you want, but it's not going to happen. The proudest moments are when we get the permit and then you think, okay, it was a long road, but we did it. We did it right. We did everything correctly. And now our landowners get to participate in this project that they've really, really, really gone to bat for and that they support. And that's what it's all about. So those permit days are always the happy days. Those are the proud days. On the subject of permitting, what are you finding in that space? What we're seeing in permitting, again, they're utility scale that we're typically working with. So we're talking about state level permitting. There's some board work and local work that is done, but that's typically done as just good neighbor, good relationship building. Again, we always want to be a good partner to the community. So even if we don't need local approval, it's nice to make sure that we're keeping them included because we don't want to make them feel like we're jumping over them and just going straight to the state because we're large enough and we can. Mm-hmm. So at the state level, we're seeing a lot of intervention, especially on wind. Um, but we see it on solar, too. We see a lot of intervention from groups who want to advocate for land use, for specific agricultural land use inside of the communities. And the ironic thing is, a lot of times, the people who are trying to advocate for it to be agricultural and to stay agricultural, let's not use this land for anything but agricultural, are not multi-generational farmers, but rather they're the five-acre-of-paradise people who live amongst those who are multi-generational and have large parcels of land and they don't want their view shed to change and I think no matter what the technology is that we're using in my mind it really boils down to two things well maybe three one is the view they don't want the view to change they don't want to see anything other than corn or soybeans even though they don't own the land right they're just used to they're used to the farmer doing corn one year soybeans (laughs) the next year and they want to be able to see that sun go all the way down to the horizon exactly and they don't want any disruption of it so it's it's view the second is economic jealousy because you have landowners who aren't able to participate because they're outside the project boundary or because they don't have enough land and they're getting jealous they don't like the fact that their farmer joe that they've always competed with you know two miles down the gravel road they've always had some sort of competition back and forth about who's got the better combine or pickup truck and now all of a sudden farmer joe's got the big leg up because he had the opportunity to sign these things up and he got to do it and now he's going to get paid so now it's not just farming anymore farming row crops he's farming the sun and he's going to make more money than me so you got that economic jealousy and then the third thing is health concerns there are always going to be health concerns. Whether I put up a radio tower, a new grain bin, a wind turbine, a solar panel, there are always going to be health concerns from the neighbors because it's new and it's different and I don't know anything about it. So unless you educate me, I'm going to go out and what am I going to do? I'm going to Google it. 
And there are a lot of groups that's a that are dangerous out there thing advocating. to do. <laughs> exactly. There are a lot of groups that are out there advocating against renewable energy. And who knows who's funding them and why they're doing what they do. But they have a lot of conviction. They're very well organized. And there's a lot of information out there to basically hand over playbooks to these neighbors and say, right. here's why you don't want to have a solar farm next to you. Yeah. Here's why you shouldn't vote for a solar garden in your community. Here's why rooftop solar isn't worth the amount of money that is being invested into it right so you've got this large large pool of misinformation out there ready at your fingertips and we see neighbors that are taking that and turning it into their own letter format and submitting that to utility commission boards or local governments and saying you can't do this to us don't do this to us I'd say when it comes to permitting and things like that, what we're seeing is we're seeing interveners. And and it's not just letters. You'll actually have intervening parties where the neighbors will come together and they'll form a legal entity. And then that legal entity will be an intervener at the state level. And so it's it's a blessed curse because they have questions that need to be addressed, right? And they're doing it through a more formal process. So it might take extra time and extra resources. But in that same vein, what's ended up happening is the developers who are going for permit already have done the studies on all of these different issues and have pulled the resources to correctly state what the impacts are going to be with regard to X, Y, or Z. And it's a more thorough application. It's a more thorough permitting process, which means we can have even more trust in the fact that when that commission approves that permit, we know that we've really done everything that we can. And so do we want to have interveners? (laughs) It goes a lot smoother without them. But at the same time, we're we're already putting in a, a lot of energy resources and time and money to make sure that all of the same topics are being addressed in our permit applications or at the local township board level. Those are all answers that we have to be able to give the information and those that are able to really review and understand it can have a bit more solace in what's happening. Yeah, and I definitely see it as a big learning opportunity when points are made, whether they be completely outlandish or, hey, that kind of makes sense. That's definitely a learning opportunity. And then that carries out the entire company of what tools do we need in our toolbox for the next project to address this then it's not something that could come down the line later on. Yeah, very much so. And that, that's a, an excellent point, Marie. You're right. And we do that. You know, we have a bank of questions. The mm-hmm. most absurd questions you've ever heard. Trust me, we've probably heard it. And at our headquarters, when we're doing the outreach and communication strategy, these are all things that we're keeping in mind. So when we go out to do public meetings or we prepare pieces about the project or Q&As, we can include some of that. Now, we don't want to include all of it because we obviously don't want to give traction to some of the more ridiculous claims right but like you said there are some good points that you might not have, have thought about it does push us and it makes us it makes us better it makes our resources better and it informs people and that's what it's all about making sure that the general public not just those that are completely for and those that are completely against the majority of the public is in the middle they right. haven't made up their mind yet so what really comes down to is who's informing the general middle public in these areas first Mm-hmm. Is it is it us, the source that actually has the information, the knowledge and the resources? Or is it the neighbor who's who's mad because Farmer Joe is going to make a little extra money? So he's going to go to coffee the next day and he's going to spread a ton of misinformation because, quite frankly, he's pissed. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
can't put it any more blunt than that. Yeah. So that's why we want to make sure that no matter what your size of your project or what your industry is or what your technology is, it's important to be one of the first voices that are heard. And whether that's through your participants, like we talked about at the beginning, making sure that those conversations are done in a trusting format, who's more trusted than neighbors? Well, mm-hmm. there are probably more trusted people for you than your yeah. neighbors. But when you look at the scale of trust, uh, a developer or a, a service provider is going to come in at a different level of trust than a neighbor. And so we've got to make sure we're educating those that can go out and that can educate their peers and their neighbors and their own environments before the guy down the road that's mad does. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. We're going to wrap things up. Out of everything we talked about and everything throughout your professional career, what is one thing that you would like listeners to walk away with? I would say the one thing to walk away with is that idea and that principle that communication is trust. We can't go in as an individual or as a company and expect to have trust right off the get-go. But we can establish trust through early communication, open communication, and really having an understanding of the party that we're talking to. So don't lump everybody into one big ball. Just because they live in the middle of nowhere and they're quote-unquote rural, understand that there are pockets of cultures inside rural America. And a small county in Minnesota or a small township in Minnesota is not going to be the same as a small township in Kentucky or in Illinois. Every community has its own flair and its own culture. And you really need to understand that before you can effectively communicate, which will help you build your trust. So do your research, understand who your audience is, understand who these community members are, understand the history of the community, what's burned them in the past, what's really benefited them in the past, and and align yourselves in a manner to be open with them about what you're doing, how you're doing it, and answering as as many questions as you can, but even communicating with them earlier than when you have the answers every question that they have because if you become someone who they can trust then you're going to have that wonderful communication so they just go hand in hand trust and communication remember that i love that i love that's a great takeaway so mariah thank you so much yeah i'd I'd always be happy to and i appreciate the opportunity to share some of these principles and some of my experience with your listeners i hope it's valuable to those out there listening and yeah i really appreciate the opportunity so so thank you both for for inviting me on and for having me today and so where can our listeners find good steward you can find good steward online at goodstewardconsulting.com that's www.goodstewardconsulting.com the world's longest url (laughs) (laughs) well we'll definitely put that in the show notes for folks as well and you can find grne solar across social media and on our website at grne solar please subscribe tell a friend and leave us a five-star review thank you for listening and now you know what's up (laughs) 